are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound gets support from fake ads. 100 episodes, 100 fake ads. No real ads for this podcast. Yeah, because that would be profitable. everybody welcome to the 100th episode of rootbound i am the host of the show and my name is steve and if you didn't know rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside and each week i normally invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them and then i share with the guest about a plant that means something to me and through this process we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other It is the philosophy of Rootbound that everybody has at least one plant that is meaningful to them because plants are so integral to our lives as humans on this planet. But today is a special episode. We're not going to stick with the normal format. Uh, One, because it's the 100th episode of Rootbound, which is pretty cool. And two, this is one of those special podcasts which I call Mixed Greens, which is kind of like a grab bag show where I revisit some stuff we've talked about on previous episodes, etc., But before we do that, this is the portion of the program where I'm going to put on my uh, public radio hat and move into the public radio pitch portion of the show. Um, Now, this is not public radio. Uh, This podcast is just me, basically. But, you know, there are costs to the show. Uh, There's hosting. There's a website. Um, It takes a lot of time to put together this show. And so I'm asking you, the listener now, if you're listening to this podcast and you like Rootbound and you get value from the show, think about contributing a little bit to the show. I have lots of ideas for how I can make the show better in the future, Uh, lots of uh, really cool upgrades I could do to the website, Um, lots of stuff that, you know, costs time and money, and it's a little bit hard to do as just a single podcaster here. And so if you like the show and you want to help it keep going, you want to help it do bigger and better things, head over to rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including the link to the Patreon, which is the easiest way if you want to support the show monetarily. And if you do want to support the show monetarily, there's some things on there like getting a thank you on the website or getting a thank you on the show itself. But the top tier, and this is really cool, if you support the show at the highest level, which is $20 per month, you will get a custom rootbound public radio style tote bag. This is a really cool tote bag. I've been trying to get this together for quite a while, um, but I finally have it ready to go in the works. And each tote bag will be personally embroidered by my grandma. That's right. What other radio show or podcast does that? Having a custom embroidered tote bag by the host's grandmother. I think only root bound. Now, don't worry. These are not going to be hand embroidered. My grandma's actually a whiz with a uh, computerized embroidery machine. So it's going to look really cool. And uh, I'll put a picture of a mock-up of what it's going to look like. Um, So yeah, if you want a public radio style tote bag, donate at the public radio tier and uh, you will get this custom public radio style root bound tote bag, which is very cool. So yeah, once again, thanks for awesome shows. It's been about two years of making this podcast. I really appreciate you, the listeners. And yeah, if you want to help keep the show going, head over to rootboundpodcast.com slash support and uh, 
get the link to the Patreon. Um, I would be so appreciative if you uh, if you chip in to the show. So that ends the uh, the public radio style pitch part of the program. <laughs> and uh, with that, let's move on to the rest of the special mixed green episode of Rootbound. <laughs> And so I'm saying thanks a million to you. Excuse the background sound, but I'm out in my garden for good reason. You know, one of the challenges about hosting a podcast about plants is that plants don't make a lot of sounds. And so when there's an opportunity of a plant that makes a sound it's hard to pass up but i will admit when i talked about this plant on a few shows ago i forgot to include its signature sound now i have used a plant sound in the past i think pawpaws have a very iconic sound of the way they fall from the tree after you shake it um but the sound i'm gonna show for you now um is very iconic and i'm not gonna tell you the plant you can wait until the end of the show to see if you can guess okay here is the sound of the plant i'm talking about ready Can you guess what that sound is? Tune back in at the end of the show with your guess. Unexpectedly, a lovely face you see And suddenly pop goes your heart Without a warning word A charming voice is heard And suddenly pop goes your heart When life is just a bowl of withered fruit So sour and dry episode 82 of the show i spoke with shane alden about tree of heaven and i feel since then my like understanding of this tree has grown quite a bit and there's a few things that i didn't mention on the show number one is if you're trying to identify tree of heaven when it's young versus something like um black walnut or or something like that they have some similar shaped leaves one really easy way is to grab some of the leaves and crumple them in your hand and they kind of smell like rancid peanut butter. So that's that's interesting. Um, but the other thing about Tree of Heaven is its invasive uh, characteristics. And um, not too long ago, I spoke with Sasha about uh, Multiflora Rose and his kind of battle with that invasive plant. But he also has been battling Tree of Heaven. And so I wanted to give him a call here and talk about his experience with Tree of Heaven and its invasive quality. So let's just give him a ring right now. Hello. Hey, Sasha. How's it going? Hey, Steve. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your experience with Tree of Heaven. Yes. Yeah. Intense topic for me. <laughs> I, I think it's it's growing to be intense for me as well. And I think people who have listened to the Tree of Heaven episode 
at that time, I think I, I I wasn't quite as educated, and I've been getting more and more educated as it gone. But I I know that you've had a lot of uh, personal experiences. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, tell me about your Tree of Heaven experience. Well, as we talked about in the episode about general invasive plants, you know, I was really focused on the sort of terror of the understory, meaning that if you look at eye level into a forest. You can see many places, unfortunately, these days that are seem to be 100% foreign plant material, which do all the terrible things of sort of stopping the trophic flow of energy through the food web. But the hope was always that if you look up, you've got a canopy that is pretty native, and it gave you a kind of positive vision that, hey, at least once the forest grows over into a more mature state, the invasive stuff is at least going to be a little less happy and then you can kind of see a positive future of where things are going to go. Mm-hmm. The problem with Tree of Heaven is that it challenges even that because it's the one that actually gets into the, the big canopy and starts out competing your, your hickories and your uh, oaks and pines and the, the forest that, that we know. And in, in my battle, I, I thought it was in pretty good shape. And then I just started to see the first one and then I noticed the second one and then it just slowly the the sort of uh, the hidden pernicious impact was revealed to me on the actual overstory of the forest yeah fascinating they, they do grow incredibly fast too yeah that's the thing I mean wh- wherever there is disturbance clearly and that's usually the, the, the sort of unholy alliance between disturbance and the ability of the invasives to take over quickly. That happens in the understory. And this is the overstory version of that, where even if you have a natural disturbance, the tree falls down, the potential for the tree of heaven to fill that, that moment of light, um, it pretty much beats out all the competition. Very, very interesting. Now, I think um, let's talk about two different topics now, I think, whichever order, I guess maybe there's a natural order for these, but I know your strategy for combating this this tree. And then also let's talk about the, the nasty little pest that comes along with it. Yeah, well, the a strategy for combating it, you know, it's, you, you have to be impressed by most of the invasive plants. You have to be impressed because it was evolution that created them. They weren't created in a lab and they have amazing techniques to survive and to thrive. And Tree of Heaven does that um, in two really notable ways. One is that it's allelopathic, so it puts out chemicals, uh, I think, in its roots and and, uh, probably every product that's falling on the forest floor that sort of uh, reduces the the fitness of of its potential competitors. But then for the chance of us killing it, the real troubling thing is that if you cut it, things just get worse because mm. uh, its, root, its root system is ready for that. And the cutting process creates some sort of hormone, some sort of chemical signal that causes the roots to go into overdrive and shoot up literally hundreds to thousands of babies the next year out of that root system. And I've, I've seen the impact of this. It can just cover an entire hillside from one parent plant. So, so you can't wow. kill it that way by cutting it, um, cutting, cutting it or girdling it with a chainsaw ain't going to do it. You, as far as I can tell, you have to use herbicide. 
Interesting. It reminds me, this is like the, it's like the Hydra, but on steroids. The Hydra only grew double heads when you got its head up. And this is like thousands. It's horrific. And as soon as that happens, you know, the treat, treatment becomes really difficult because the way you apply the herbicide to have the least impact um, on the forest floor is you do the so-called hack and squirt method. And you have a little hatchet and you do like a 45 degree angle whack into the side of you know, sort of breast height trunk. And then you, you leave a space, and that's the critical part, um, and then you do another hack. So it looks like kind of a, a necklace around. And in, in each hack, you squirt with a normal squirt bottle, a concentrated either a tricomplier or a clefacin. And you got to make sure to wear gloves because we're talking concentrated version of this, not like 1% or 2%. It's like 20 to 50%. Mm. And, um, you know, you get it in there, and you have to do it in the fall to really counter this incredible survival tactic the tree has, because in the fall, the, um, you know, uh, sugars are flowing down into the roots to prepare the roots for overwintering. And that's how you kill its survival system. So you're getting that poison into the root system, but you're still tricking the plant to think, so to speak, that it's alive um, by, by the way you do these cuts sort of every few inches. And then you um, kill it probably over two years, probably not the first year, without it, it shooting everything up and you actually kill the whole root system. Wow. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's always so weird talking about this, this like uh, invasive plant control, because if like you think about it one way, it just sounds it just sounds brutal. <laughs> you know what I mean? But on the other hand, it's like this uh, combating something that is also brutal to the native plants. It's very, very, it's a very interesting topic. I mean, you gotta keep, keep. You have to have the positive view of what happens then, right? You are really mm-hmm. re, reopening a, a big swath. Um, um, I mean, I, I was working on an entire hillside, and after just to give folks hope, maybe it was a five-hour effort at the right time of year in September um, that I think reclaimed that hillside for all the native vegetation, all kinds of, uh, wildflowers on the, there's a forest in Pennsylvania on the, on the forest floor, ferns, um, all kinds of amazing stuff. Um, yeah. so it, it was really worth it. Maybe you got to come back the next year, one more hit, so to speak. Um, but you know, you, there's all this life that comes back almost immediately. It's very rewarding. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the other interesting aspects. So when, you know, when I recorded the episode about Tree of Heaven, I had just understood the connection between the spotted lanternfly, which if people don't know, is kind of becoming a, a major pest on the East Coast. Um, and, and at that time when I recorded that episode, I had never even seen a spotted lanternfly. But but literally like the next day, I was in a parking lot and I saw Tree of Heaven and I got curious and I was like, well, let me go look over there. And sure enough, it was covered with spotted lanternflies and, and their old egg casings. And so... Um, it's a really interesting like connection. Yeah. And I just curious what you have to say about that, what your experience with tree of heaven and the spotted lantern fly are. So three years ago, we were uh, sort of felt responsible for um, improving this, this particular patch of forest. And I found, you know, as I was describing the first tree of heaven, the second tree of heaven, I didn't find any spotted lantern flies. I read about it. I realized the connection. I realized that the tree of heavens were the ones that threatened to draw them in to your place, and then they have this potentially, I guess, outsized impact on all kinds of plants, but they are dependent on that one to kind of start, as I understand it. 
So that was, and I didn't see any, like, as, as you were saying, and I felt like, oh, I, I got a shot to get these things out of here before it draws the spotted lantern fly in. And then this year, I had just the experience you did. I, I um, really decided I was going to find every tree I have to treat, and suddenly there they were. And not only, it's like this thing, you, you suddenly see something, and then you really see it. And I felt like I was going to get attacked by these things. Uh, <laughs> They, they were in these groups on on that that bark that I now find so horrible, which is unfair, but it's this, this cantaloupe-looking bark. And then you see just this cluster of what would otherwise be pretty beautiful insects, right, with those mm-hmm. red wings. Um, but it just it filled me with horror. And then at one point they started peeing on me, which I thought was really <laughs> a, a sort of sign of the elemental... Uh, conflict we were in with each other <laughs> oh my gosh it's something <laughs> yeah yeah you know I, I, it's really interesting uh, you mentioned about how the, the insects looks which they are a phenomenal looking insect and also similarly tree of heaven is a beautiful tree if it wasn't for its like habit and i i, fi- I find that parallel between the insect and the tree very interesting absolutely you you definitely like i was saying get respect for <laughs> these uh, creations that are incredibly successful and that's why they're potentially so destructive for for other species that are kind of clinging on and and then maybe you can just clarify for the audience um what what is the what is the danger of the spotted lanternfly something i've read a little bit about but i maybe i don't know as much as you yeah i'm not i'm not sure i mean it seems like the actual impact has been most felt by, by, for example, grape um, growers and um, maybe other fruits um, where they, I think they just suck the sap, don't they? I think um, so, the yeah. And, and kill the plant that way. And as, as I read, the concern is that they seem to have the potential to be generalists and really affect the forest as a whole in that way. I'm not sure that that's been confirmed, you know, that a whole sort of swath of other species have been taken out. But I think that that's what we're concerned about if the population kind of gets to a new critical mass. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really fascinating to see an invasive, such an obvious invasive insect, because, you know, we've had the, the emerald ash borer here for a long time, which is devastating, but you don't, you rarely see the insect but the right. spotted lanternfly is just so obvious. And this this year, if you look on social media, uh, New York City was just inundated. People were like freaking out because they're like these big black and red insects kind of everywhere. It is. And, and you, you forget, you know, we get sort of, I mean, not used to it because it was horrifying, but, but you forget how new this whole thing is, how fast mm-hmm. the spread is. Um, and they've, they've really uh, devised the kind of perfect conquering system, right? They're using our highway system to effectively spread themselves because on the edges of highways is where you have most of the tree of heaven because, again, you have disturbance there. They're particularly good at taking over, colonizing new spots. And then you got all the uh, spotted lanternflies there. And then you have cars whizzing by. And we were driving uh, to this spot, and uh, I, I had um, talked to my wife about exactly this topic and so she was really primed um and then a spotted lantern fly landed on our windshield oh my gosh and (laughs) she was so horrified at this point by all the stories i told her that she with extraordinary dexterity and fearlessness 
open the window and reach all the way around to the middle of the front windshield and whack at the middle of the highway at 70 miles an hour. The, oh my gosh. That, that lantern fly. Um, and, uh, but it, it showed in practice how, you know, we, we would have driven that lantern fly straight into our forest. Well, the, the that's that's just, yeah, that's uh, really fascinating. Also, I also read that it's common for uh, the lanternflies to lay their eggs on cars in places where you may not notice, and then you drive them in yeah. and they hatch later. Like in the wheel wells and stuff, right? They yeah. really like like a hard surface to put the egg sacs on. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's why you've seen at least further from where they started some of the outbreaks are a little weirdly spotty. It's not like they're flying and kind of moving in a wave. They kind of like mm-hmm. <laughs> pop up in these kind of islands wherever they get transported by humans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I think it can be... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was saying you go ahead. Well, I mean, it can be demotivating to think of it that way, but I, I think I'm left with you know the hope that even though they could be generalists, that they, they do appear to have this real dependency on the tree of heaven. And feeling like, despite the difficulty, that I might be winning the the, the war um, in this particular forest against the tree of heaven, it, it leaves me with with the hope and energy. Well, I think that's a good way to uh, end this little conversation about tree of heaven. Thanks, Sasha, for chatting with me about it. Thanks very much, Steve. Appreciate it. Back on episode 71 of the show, I spoke with Angel about black locust, this awesome tree that grows around in my area of the country. Um, But there's one dazzling detail that I missed until after the show's recording, and that is that black locust wood is fluorescent. If you shine a black light on black locust wood, it glows green, which is really incredible. And I was trying to, like, learn more about that, and one of the things I thought of is, like... Why? And I found a really interesting article that is called uh, Black Lights and Wood. And black locust is not the only wood that is fluorescent. Different woods fluoresce in different ways. And I'll talk a little bit more about fluorescence and what it is in a second. But lots of wildlife is fluorescent. This article, which is on crowspath.org, which is written by Teague O'Connor, called Black Lights and Wood, mentions that flying squirrels, platypuses, scorpions, and wombats are all fluorescent. Um, and the reason why those creatures are fluorescent is, is I think, not 100% clear, but you can imagine certain animals can perceive um, different wavelengths of light, and so there might be some um, evolutionary advantage to that kind of fluorescence. But, as is mentioned in this article, wood is kind of weird to be fluorescent, because wood, you, you can't see it. It's underneath the bark. It's only when you cut down a tree and start using the wood that you could see the fluorescence. And so why is wood fluorescent? So let's just uh, do a quick reminder, a quick physics reminder, uh, for those of you who may not remember what fluorescence is. Um, It's a pretty interesting phenomenon. So when you see something, just normally with your eyes, that is the sunlight or whatever light 
bouncing off that object and reflecting back to your eyes. And whatever color it is, that those wavelengths of lights reflect off that object and back to your eyes. That's pretty standard light. Fluorescence is a little different. Fluorescence is when ultraviolet light, and that's what a black light is, strikes an object, and then through a somewhat complicated, I think, quantum process, but <laughs> don't quote me on that audience, basically that UV light is uh, converted into visible light and emitted back out. And so you see the effects of the ultraviolet light, which you can't see with your eyes, because it is basically converted into visible light and it is emitting that light. So it's not a straight reflection. It is an absorption and re-emission of light in a different wavelength. So that's what fluorescence is. So why would wood be fluorescence? Well, uh, this article, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, crowspath.org called Black Lights and Wood, supposes that it's kind of just a side effect of some of the um, flavonoid compounds that are in wood. It's not on purpose. It's just they happen to fluoresce. And the other reasons why those flavonoids are being used by the wood for various, uh, you know, pest deterrent or other properties of that wood, they just also happen to be fluorescent compounds, which is really interesting. So, yeah, there's a bunch of different woods that are fluorescent. A couple listed here besides um, black locust are staghorn sumac, which we also spoke about in that episode with Shane Alden. Um, apparently, it... Uh, it has a yellow-green heartwood, which is pretty interesting, barberry, buckthorn, red oak, a lot of conifers and box elder all have fluorescent wood. So yeah, that is fluorescent wood. Super cool. Just one episode ago, on episode 99 of the show, I spoke with C about the linden tree. And one thing we briefly mentioned is that linden can be used as a chocolate substitute. But neither of us really had much personal experience with that uh, Linden chocolate. But I remembered that Amy, who told me about Kentucky Coffee Tree on episode 70, I remember seeing on her Instagram that she had experimented with Linden chocolate. So I figured, let's have a conversation with Amy about everything she knows about Linden chocolate and learn a little bit more together. Here we go. So I have made Linden chocolate a couple of times uh, in various forms, but I've never made it into like... A chocolate truffle like chocolate candy that you would just like eat like a chocolate bar because mm. um, when you when you roast the seeds and then grind them you end up with something like cocoa powder and then you have to choose mm. your adventure from there so most of the time what i do with them is just make hot chocolate um oh. yes um and part of the reason I've done that is up until recently, I haven't had a fine enough sieve to get the gritty parts out. And the one time I tried to make Linden chocolate brownies, it was like eating brownies full of sand. So <laughs> um, I've tended to stick to applications where I can uh, simmer them in some kind of milk um, and, then, and then either, you know, do a drinking chocolate or I think probably the post that you saw on Instagram was the time that I... Uh, turned it into a, a custard, like a little mm. mocha baked custard that I, I melded with Kentucky coffee bean. Because um, Farger chef Alan Berger had made a, a, a Linden chocolate, like pot de creme, and then said that the flavor reminded him a little bit of Kentucky coffee bean and that they would probably go well together. So I was like, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Well, did they go well together? They did. I liked it. Um, my mom, however, my mom is a, a bit of a chocolate fanatic, and she she was not fooled. It was not the same. For her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's talk about that process a little bit more. You mentioned the seeds and roasted. The seeds, the seeds are quite small, and I mean, for the audience who's not maybe aware, uh, uh, cacao beans are are quite big. They're like a, I mean, they're 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 bigger than an almond, and and I, I, I it just seems like the process might be quite involved to uh to first get the seeds out of the fruit and then to roast them. I, I, tell me about the process. I, it seems it seems difficult. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like most processes uh, that are about like foraging and processing at like an individual household level, any kind of seed or nut, most of us look at and go, that's that's a lot of work. I don't know about that. Um, so the, the fruit around the seed is so, uh, it's like thin and green and fuzzy. And I, it, um, you don't take the fruit off of the seed. You roast the whole mm. thing. The fruit's pretty dry. Um, I don't know. I yeah, I've never tried to just straight up nibble the fruit off of the seed, but it's just the whole the whole thing. Um, okay. Classically, the received wisdom is that you should get them in like July or August when they're still green on the tree. You know, they're like little green peas on the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, last year I did a test when I I did them green. I did them a little bit after they they turned like a light tan color on the trees, and then they just stick around on the trees. Mm-hmm. for months so every like two months i did another harvest and tried making hot chocolate again just to see like how long that harvest window really was and i made some hot chocolate in january pick, picked some of them in, in january and it, they still roasted up chocolatey and and were quite tasty so it doesn't have to be the green seeds um the trick though is so once you you pick the little the little pea-sized nuggets off the tree you stick them in the oven at, you know, it's, it's a basic bake, pick a, pick a medium temperature, you know, like 350 mm-hmm. and then half an hour is typically good, but you really, you just go until it smells like hot chocolate aroma in your house like mm-hmm. low mm. when the chocolate flavor starts coming. Cause at first you pick it and you're like, this doesn't seem very promising at all. Chocolate. I don't believe it. And then the alchemy happens in the oven. But once you've roasted them, you have to use them within a day or so, or the chocolate goes away. Um, Because the chocolate flavor compounds are volatile. They're not shelf stable. And that's why Linden chocolate never made it into the stores as a commodity. (laughs) I see. So like if you tried to make a chocolate bar, that may not work. Yeah. If you made it and like brought it to like a a friend as a special gift, I made chocolate today or yesterday, then yes. I haven't tried making the sort of like chocolate linden paste that people have talked about Mm. making on the internet and then like seen how long that retains its chocolate flavor. Um, I've just noticed that if I roast the seeds and I wait too long to do anything with them, then you have something that tastes like a, like a toasty roasty kind of nut or seed, but not nothing chocolate adjacent. Um, Very interesting. I, the the one thought I'm having now is that, I think I understand a little bit about how chocolate is made. And I think the one piece that's interesting about chocolate is the cacao butter that you get out of the c- cocoa bean as well. And I don't imagine there's a lot of that oiliness. No, there's not. Right, so you might have, yeah, right. You have to substitute that with something else. If you, I don't know, how's this paste that you've heard about? Um, people typically you made yourself add some the, kind of a yeah. fat. They'll either do like a, a vegetable oil and end up with sort of a slurry. Um, but some people prefer to use a fat that's solid at room temperature. So I've seen people use butter. I've seen people use coconut oil. But you're adding some other kind of fat source to it. Um, and then the other difference between Linden chocolate and chocolate chocolate is the fermentation. 
right? Mm. Cacao is fermented before it's it's turned into chocolate. Now, that's an interesting idea, um, actually, because the fermentation that is done in cacao is mostly, from my understanding, a great way to just get rid of the pulp. It does yeah. it does some change the flavor, but the, the that pulp is really stuck to the seed really well. I, I've I've been lucky enough to handle a, a wild cacao pod and, and actually eat some of the fruit straight away. Is it good? And yeah, yeah, the fruit is, you know it's it's uh, the fruit is tangy. What what is it like? I'm so bad at comparison <laughs> flavors. It doesn't taste like chocolate at all. Um, there's a lot of fruits like that uh, in the jungle that have that kind of like format of of like white pulp around a big seed um but yeah my understanding is that the fermentation really just helps that that flesh fall away but it does change the cocoa chemically i'm wondering if you could simulate that somehow now that the fact that there's not that much fruit there there's probably not a lot to ferment but i wonder if you like did some kind of fermentation process if you could get the fruit to fall away more and if it would have a similar effect because I guess the thing that blew my mind about it was when I was talking to C is that they're, they are within the same family and so there probably is some similar stuff going on but I guess not, not clearly not too similar because they're pretty different plants but in, yeah anyway I'm glad no, 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 <laughs> I will tell you I did not know that chocolate was in the Malvaceae family that blew my mind a little bit I was like it's related to okra what no interesting yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I always think of with the Malvaceae. I always think of like okra and hibiscus as like the flagship species. But there's there's such weird things with um with those families, you know, like they can be such widely different plants. And yeah, cacao is such a fascinating plant. Yeah. Um, um, also, when it comes to London, highly encourage you to in the spring um, eat some of the new growth leaves in a salad. They're nicer than lettuce. They're so mild. Wonderful. Yeah. I, you know what? Now that you mentioned that, I feel like I had that in the back of my head years ago. And yes, that didn't come up in the Linden episode either. So yes, what a versatile tree. It is. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you've got about two weeks for tree salad though. It's, it's a pretty short okay. window. And then some people think that the leaves are a bit mucilaginous, which not everyone mm. loves. And I guess that makes sense because it's in the mallow family. Um, mm. But I think it's a really nice, tender, sweet salad green. And it's a nice like oh, it's tree salad time for two weeks and then you move on in the year. I wonder if you could, I wonder if you could use the leaves uh, when they're a little bit older as like a wrapping, if you could like uh, ferment them or boil them and use them to like make dolmas or something like that. Yeah, that's definitely, that would be something to try. I might experiment with that and get back to you because I have tried them when they're a little too old and they are too bitter at that stage um, oh, to be palatable. And I suspect that if you boiled them like grape leaves, then the mucilaginous quality might really uh, make itself known. Uh, so maybe uh, fermentation. Sure. I I'm not sure. Um, it's something something else to be experimented with. Um, yeah, I I have seen someone. I've seen several people do a first experiment with Linden chocolate and then say, "What if we fermented it like cacao?" Mm -hmm. And so essentially like making plans to do that experiment. And then, then I never hear the report back afterwards. And so either people don't move forward with it or it doesn't go well. And so they don't report the results publicly. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I think I, you know, that's another thing thinking about it. Cause that, that fermentation process is pretty different from like, it's not a lacto fermentation process. Yeah. It's not a, uh, it's, and it's something that you see a lot in, tropical places which is like a fruit fermentation 
I was I was really I was in Cameroon once. I was really surprised how many different plants they treated that way of of just basically let that ferment until the the seed becomes like more accessible. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, it seems like a pretty different process. It's more just like a fruit fermentation, but it's it's it, yeah. It's, I think it's 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 pretty different to what we're used to in like northern areas because we'll we'll ferment fruit to get like something alcoholic or we'll lacto ferment something but this is like fermenting so that that really tough pulp falls away and you have access to the seed and the kind of different properties and so yeah i wonder how you could do that with linden something interesting to think about yeah you know that the line between fermentation and rotting is uh, <laughs> is such an individual one sometimes you in, know? indeed <laughs> especially indeed. in my house i'm not a very good fermenter <laughs> I, I've I've had that experience, and then and then vinegar slots in there at some point too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. So I'm trying to think if there's any other like fun facts and dazzling details about Linden chocolate in particular. Um, but yeah, I've done Linden hot chocolate. I've done Linden brownies, and I've done Linden um, like a Linden baked custard. Um, what was your favorite of those three? Yeah. 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 Classic. Classic. You add a little like what do you, do you add a little sugar in there or how, what do you do for the sweetness? Um sometimes I add a little sugar, sometimes a little maple syrup, sometimes just straight up, just without any added sugar. I tend to go for oat milk, which has a little bit of sweetness to it anyway. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and you drink Kentucky coffee tree, so I think you're not uh, you're not you're you're okay if something's, you know, not super sweet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a time and a place for everything, I guess. Um, Indeed. But so the flavor on that, I, it's not straight up hot chocolate though. It, I mean, if you're expecting it to be on the nose chocolate, like it's definitely in the ballpark. It's definitely like closer to chocolate than a lot of coffee substitutes are to coffee. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm, um, okay. But it's, it's more like a, like a malted mocha situation, like, um, uh. like a wild Ovaltine or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, very good. Well, that that's uh, super interesting. I'm really looking forward to trying to track down a linden tree near me. I I can't think of where one is now. I'm so bummed my neighbor cut the one down, but you know it was it was it was kind of on its last legs anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing that chocolate thing with me because I, it's so fascinating. And I think you said that even in your Instagram post, like we have a we have a chocolate tree in our backyards. Yeah. <laughs> They're a really common street tree uh, in Denver as well. I don't remember ever seeing them when I was living on, on the East Coast, um, but I think my eyes just weren't weren't open to them yet. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, you're in the range for them, I think. But uh, totally, yeah. totally. I I'm, I'm going to keep my eye out. Yeah, it's not one that like pops up a lot, but I'm sure I could find one. So yeah, I'll I'll, I'll try to report back on maybe a different mixed greens episode. Yeah. If I get a chance to try someone in the in the in the next seasons, yeah, I want to live in the world where we have like local annual chocolate festivals in every city where these trees grow. Like, I don't understand why that's not happening. That's an amazing idea. So cool. Um, yeah, somebody who's listening to the show, start that. I'll come. Yes, me too. Mmm, yeah. <laughs> the land of chocolate.
Chocolate Half Price. Mr. Simpson. One last note about Lyndon Chocolate that Amy wanted me to mention that she told me after we got off the phone is she wanted to make sure that we knew about a woman named Ashlyn Morgan who runs a nursery in Tennessee called Green Canvas Farms. And uh, she is the one who I think kind of ignited this more recent uh, exploration of Linden chocolate on the internet. She put out a YouTube video where she explored an old recipe in a book. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So very cool thing to do to explore old literature and find kind of, you know, quote unquote, new things to do with very cool plants like Linden. So that's awesome. Check that out, Ashlyn Morgan. And you can also go to greencanvasfarms.com. If you didn't already guess, the popping sound you heard just now and early in the show is the sound of the maypop or the northern passionflower, Passiflora incarnata. And it's a very delicious fruit, but yes, if you're walking along an area where they're growing abundantly, you are likely to accidentally step on one and hear a nice juicy pop. Which is one of the supposed reasons why they're called maypop, but if you listen to that episode, you'll hear me explain another reason. But yes, I couldn't pass up the sound of the Maypop. Say, quite unexpectedly, a lovely face you see and suddenly goes your heart. Yes, sir. Without one warning word, a charming voice is heard and suddenly goes your heart. Oh, say... When life is just a bowl of old withered fruit When it's so sour and so dry All you do is want to cry Then presto change, oh you're in love And life is a cherry pie, sir You don't amount to much Then some lovely hand you touch and suddenly There it goes, uh-huh Oh, those clouds of gray, they roll away On the day that your loved dreams get their start And tell me, what if you chance to quarrel? Suppose you quarrel, you say goodbye You say so long and then Quite unexpectedly That lovely face you see and suddenly Look out, there it goes again Yes, well, that about wraps up our 100th episode of Rootbound. Thank you all for sticking around through these 100 episodes. Thanks for listening, and I will speak to you on the next episode. This special 100th episode, Mixed Greens version of Rootbound, featured calls from Alexander von Bismarck, Executive Director of the Environmental Investigation Agency. Learn more about EIA at EIA.org and Amy Anderson. Follow her foraging exploits at Hidden City Foraging on Instagram. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, visit rootboundpodcast.com support to find all the ways you can help support the show, including donating to the Patreon. I would be very, very grateful. Rootbound is hosted by Centennial Podcaster, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. 
Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And thanks so much for listening to 100 of them. Here's to 100 more fake ads. I can't believe I did 100 of these things.